Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, going solo today, Ebbs on Assignment, and I'm coming to you live from the luxurious Essential Pest Control Studios located in the KVOI Broadcast Complex here in Tucson, Arizona, welcoming you to a Super Bowl 57 edition of Inside Track. Producer Tom also joins us running the board and taking your calls. We invite your calls or questions for our guests at 520-790-2040, which are relevant to the topic. We have a great show for you today. We'll hear from uh, State Senator Anthony Kern in just a few seconds. And then after that, Mayor Richard Bailey from Coronado, California, whose city is being put upon by the state of California with some very, very harsh requirements on housing. Eb and I want to remind you to please support our great sponsors, Tucson Iron and Metal Retail. Call them at 520-209-1576. Loads of great steel products at low prices for your home, office, or ranch. Drop by the yard Monday through Saturdays. Corazon Cabinets, Call the kids over there. Join Allie at 520-488-2266. Luxury cabinets for your kitchen and bath areas at a price you will love. That's why they're Corazon cabinets. Essential pest control. Call 520-886-3029. I called Essential for this winter weed pretreatment. Uh, they came out right as they said they would on Monday afternoon. I have green gravel in front of my yard right now, but that'll go away the first uh, rain. And uh, they, they did such a good job for me last week. There were no problems with weeds uh, all summer long. Also supporting Inside Track is my absent co-host, Mr. Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Eb is dedicated to help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Eb Wilkinson and I support all of our great locally owned family run businesses who support our show. So should you. For the next several minutes, friend of the show, Arizona State Senator Anthony Kern from LD20 joins us. And um, An uh, Anthony, are you there? I'm there, Bruce. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for taking time to chat with us this afternoon, sure. Senator. I know things yeah. are busy. I've taken special notice uh, to a bill you dropped on first-degree murder charges uh, for deaths caused in Arizona uh, due to fentanyl. Can you tell us about your bill and why you dropped it? Absolutely, yes. As we all know, Bruce, uh, the fentanyl crisis is is a national security issue uh, uh, you know, at, at a national level. So Arizona has a huge fentanyl problem. Um, I actually heard through the grapevine that Congressman Paul Gosar was running a bill at the federal level that is uh, similar to this one. And so I went ahead and researched that a little bit. And I said, yeah, that's a great bill. Let's go ahead and run it at the, at the state level. So I took his language and I moved it over to a bill here at the state Senate. And uh, first-degree murder charges, if you were caught dealing and uh, someone that you sell to uh, dies and it's traced back to you as the dealer, then yes, class one felony, first-degree murder charges. So, Anthony, what kind of support have you received uh, from your Senate colleagues so far for the bill? Well, it passed out of committee, Bruce, a couple days or a couple weeks ago, maybe. Um, time goes by so fast. Passed out of committee on party lines. As you know, down at the legislature, there's two different philosophies. One is 
uh, pro criminal, and the other one is pro. <laughs> You're right you know, about that. Sentencing. <laughs> yeah, and the other the other one, which where where I'm at, is pro sentencing, and and sure, you know the 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 drug issue and and the uh, fentanyl crisis. And all that, there's it's many faceted, but but there's two different philosophies down there, um, and so the 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 support I'm getting is definitely from the Republican side. But keep in mind, um, as Judiciary Chairman, uh, it went through my committee and it was voted out. It's now on its way to the floor, and uh, the Republicans will support it. We are doing a a few tweaks on it. Um, I am reaching out to a group called New Freedom over here in Phoenix at I-17 in Peoria. Fantastic um, organization, and uh, I'm getting their input on, on, on the bill because I don't want... Uh, I don't want it to go after, I mean, my goal is to go after the bigger drug dealers in the state. Um, and so I'm kind of getting their input on, on what that means, the definition of a drug dealer. So, uh, but the support is in the Republican side, uh, definitely, and not on the uh, and not on the Democrat side. So what's the excuse for not supporting it? I mean, don't they think that fentanyl is a big issue here in Arizona and especially being right on the border? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, at a national level, they're not even securing the border. So we have fentanyl pouring in over our southern border. And no, the Democrats don't really care about that. They do care. They they want to pour money into social work and, you know, uh, different programs to maybe, um, you know, show the pros and cons of taking a fentanyl pill. And God only knows what they're, what they're you know, what they're after. But the bottom line is, is... Um, uh, you know, it, it is it is an issue. It's a huge issue. It's killing. You know, I know people that have died from fentanyl overdoses. You know, people we know. Everyone we know knows someone that has been affected by this. And I don't get their philosophy at all. Um, you know, on many levels, but this is one level where it's pretty evident. The Democrats are very pro criminal, and and Republicans are are pro freedom, pro life. You know, and we believe that if you commit a crime, or I believe that if you commit a crime. You know, we'll look at it, see what happened, you know, see the co- the effect of the crime. But honestly, you should pay a price for a crime you commit. And that's where I stand. So for our listeners, uh, Anthony Kern um, has served in the legislature. This is not his uh, first rodeo. And um, he is somebody who is... Um, one of the 10% who does 90% of the work at the Arizona State Legislature. He is a, a great, great representative of the people. Uh, another good representative of the people is Jake Hoffman. He's introduced a bill which proposes to split Maricopa County into several different new counties. I've heard from a number of people who favor this idea. What are you hearing about Jake's uh, proposal, and what are your views on splitting up Maricopa County? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Bruce. Thank you. Um, so Jake Hoffman and I, uh, Jake is actually the chairman of the Arizona Freedom Caucus. I'm sure you and your listeners know about the Congressional Freedom Caucus yep. at, in Washington, D.C. What, uh, what, what a, an organization out there uh, has done is brought, has broken that up into state caucuses. So I uh, and Jake Hoffman and uh, somebody down there that yeah, your listeners are probably familiar with, Justine Wadsack, yeah, a loss uh, uh, amongst uh, about ten, and we're all senators, state senators, and there's about eight, um, eight representatives in this Freedom Caucus. So these are gung ho fighters for freedom, liberty, truth. I mean, they are, they are fantastic. They are. We, I, I guess the best way I can describe it is, uh, is uh, you know, Trump's uh, personality at a state level. Every one of us. 
And so uh, with Jay Kaufman's bill, I, 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 you know, I, I kind of lean on, I know what's, try, I will support it, but I know the, the only part I don't like is you're going to have to hire more government people um, to, to, to see these different offices or these different uh, districts, if you know what I mean. That's why I kind of was in, not in favor of the lieutenant governor. Uh, there's another bill I saw yesterday that uh, that there's that they want to do a, a lieutenant governor, yeah, a lieutenant um, director or a assistant director at Department of Health Services, and you know I don't I just that's my only craw in in Jay Kaufman's bill is that, but I do get the absolute need of separating the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors into several districts. And, and as I, everybody knows, the elections. Yeah, and I guess it's not just about the elections um, uh, integrity uh, issue. It also, uh, wouldn't you say, has to do with the, the spreading bureaucracy, which exists <clears throat> not just in Maricopa County, but Pima and a lot of other uh, you know state uh, counties uh, here yep. in Arizona. Um, yep. What kind of support do you think he has amongst uh, the members? Well, I can tell you, Jake's Jake's a strong senator, and um, yeah, I mean, him and I are are almost one hundred percent on everything, if not everything. And uh, I, he he will pass it through. Uh, he's got he's a strong conservative. He he knows what he's talking about. He does his research, and he's a great senator. And we'll get the support. Um, yeah, and you mentioned about you know the bureaucracy. It's it's funny, uh, as you stated, I was there for six years as a representative. I came, I, I lost in 2020, and then came back. Um, which, came which back, was a loss uh, for the state, Anthony. Oh, thank you, Bruce. I appreciate that. Uh, but you know, during that time, you know, because I was in D.C. in January 6, and uh, yep. and I was a Trump elector and all that garbage. Um, you know, the media they wanted to uh, to do to do bad things to me, but. Uh, you just keep moving and you never give up. And, you know, I know who my God is and he will protect me. Um, and so I ran for state Senate when Paul Boyer decided to uh, go after Trump. And, uh, Thank and so God. here I am. And he got kicked out. <laughs> Thank now, God he, did announce, he did announce for mayor of Glendale, oh, yeah. which is funny. Yeah. Oh, good luck. But, uh, but the bureaucracy, Bruce, out there is 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 just horrendous. And uh, my eyes have been open this last time even more to the point to the fact of these uh, bureaucrats come into the, our committees and they're like, well, we don't like that bill. Well, my feeling is who the heck are you to, to not like this bill? I know you represent people uh, in your organizations, but the bottom line, uh, you know, P, the constituents have brought these issues to us. And, you know, apparently government isn't working. So, you know, the, the, defini- the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Uh, you know, we got to try something new to fix this. We got to try something new to fix education, to fix our justice system, to fix, you know, the elections. Uh, it's not working out there, and we can't keep going down the same road. So along those along those same lines, Anthony, Pima County Health Director uh, Cullen was rejected uh, along party lines this week in a committee hearing on her nomination to head the State Department of Health. Talk about these nomination hearings and and. Clarify for me and for the listeners: Do they have force of law um, if if the uh, entire legislature votes? Well, I guess it's in the Senate uh, that they vote for these, right? Yes, yes, it is only in the Senate, and uh, I can tell you, Doctor Cullen is one of the most um, socialist, Marxist people I've ever heard. Yeah, uh, I've ever heard of. Uh, she prided herself in locking Pima County down. 
Um, yes, we know. She was. Oh, I know. I wasn't. Thank God, I wasn't down there. But uh, she prided herself in uh, giving the direction. She thought the Biden uh, mandatory vaccine mandate was was just great. Um, arrogantly, she tweeted out uh, different different things about how uh, you know it's 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 um, it's it's uh, ignorant of businesses to. Uh, to not get the vaccine and to, to want to stay open during the COVID crisis all the while. So she's ruining people's livelihoods. And this is what something that really stuck out to me. Not only her arrogance, absolute. And this is I'll say this on the floor because we're going to be voting on her nomination here in a couple of days. Not only the absolute condescending arrogance for, um, to the people that are paying her salary, but she wants she wanted to. Um, or she, she's shutting businesses down, ruining people's lives, people committing suicide, young people, uh, middle-aged people and older people, because they don't like to be locked down. They can't, can't be locked down for the duration that she wanted them to. Um, all the while, she's ruining people's lives, ruining, ruining their livelihoods. All the while, she's making over $200,000 a year. And I can guarantee you she didn't give up her paycheck. No, she didn't. Yeah. So shame on her and shame on Katie Hobbs. Our, you know, Katie Hobbs runs the show like she's got a mandate. Give me a break. Uh, barely 50% of the people voted for her. And I can guarantee if the shenanigans in Maricopa County hadn't happened, she would not be our governor. Because Carrie Lake was the best candidate I've ever seen out there. And, uh, and shame on the Maricopa County recorder and the board of supervisors and definitely Katie Hobbs. That is that is a further like that. that is a further conversation for another radio appearance down yeah. the road. Uh, yeah. We can we will talk about that because um, uh, uh, there there's going to be a lot of activity uh, with vetoes and uh, uh, in in her in her operation. Anthony Kern, Senator from LD twenty, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah. I appreciate all the hard work that you're doing. You are a patriot. And, um, right. and actually, it's it's LD twenty seven. Oh, they, LD twenty. Uh, I'm so sorry. LD twenty seven. No, you're, you're good. I used to be twenty, but it changed to twenty seven. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. Mr. Hey, Produ- thank you, Bruce. You bet, Mr. Producer. Let's go to our first break. You're listening to Inside Track on KVOI Local News and Talk. When we return, we'll speak with Coronado, California Mayor Richard Bailey about the state of California forcing affordable housing onto this waterlogged community who has no ability to build more housing. We'll be right back, so no station flipping. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house, We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. 
You mean you don't use a shoe? <sighs> no, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Uh, our guest for the next several minutes, and actually for the rest of the show today, is Mayor Richard Bailey from Coronado. Richard Bailey has served on the city council, both as council member and now as a two-term mayor of the crown of San Diego County, Coronado, California, a uh, city a little bit over 25,000 uh, people. Uh, he's also a small businessman and a much-respected figure in that city. Greetings, Mayor Bailey. How are you today? Good afternoon, Bruce. I'm doing well. Thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Hey, thanks for joining us. Before we get to our main topic today, which is very important, I also want to talk to you about some uh, non-political adventures that you've been engaged in recently, and that is mountain climbing. You just ascended to the highest peak in South, in South America, located in Argentina. I know I'm going to brutalize uh, this uh, particular mountain. I think it's called Anacagua. Did I get that? Very close. Very close. Yeah, Aconcagua. It's, it's definitely a tongue twister. Okay. And, and you're right. It's located down in Argentina, and it is the tallest peak outside of the Himalayas, just outside of, excuse me, just under 23,000 feet. So 22,837 feet. Now, Coronado was officially at 16 feet above sea level. Our home there is at about 14 feet. That is a height that takes considerable adjustment to. Tell us about this expedition. Absolutely. So I first got into mountaineering uh, just about two years ago. I've always been fascinated with high mountains, um, but I've never really taken any uh, steps to, to learn about the sport of mountaineering or to really get involved until about two years ago. And uh, so over the course of the last two years, I've been climbing mountains um, around the world of varying difficulty or increasing difficulty, I should say. And uh, this mountain down in Argentina it takes about two and a half to three weeks to climb, depending on weather conditions. Um, and it's known for being a great entry-level 7,000-meter uh, peak. So once you complete this mountain, you, you kind of gain a, enough experience, along with some additional technical training, uh, to be prepared to go, say, into the, uh, the high Himalayas. So um, besides this peak, uh, have you uh, been on a, the highest peak in, in Europe, for example, or uh, any of the other continents? This was my first of the quote-unquote seven summits um, from the, you know, the seven highest peaks of the seven continents from around the world. So this is my first of the seven summits. My other big climbs have primarily been in Ecuador, and then I was uh, at Everest Base Camp uh, just a couple years ago, and then of course in the in the Sierras here here domestically. Mm -hmm. So, um, tell me what kind of train because you had some problems when you got up to just about to the to the uh, uh, peak there. Um, 
tell us what kind of training it takes to be able to make a climb of that sort of nature. So that's one of the more common questions I get because I think a lot of uh, a lot of people are interested in answering the question of, you know, can I do this? Uh, that's actually a big driver for me is to try to answer that question for myself. And so a lot of my friends, especially that do endurance sports like marathons or triathlons, will, will ask me to will ask me like, you know, what's it comparable to? And in many ways, the, the training is different for every sport. But what I found in mountaineering is that if you there's a certain kind of baseline. Uh, aerobic and physical ability that once you have this baseline uh, anyone with that physical baseline can can reach the summit of any of these mountains from around the world and that baseline isn't necessarily as high as you might think however where where the big unknown is no matter how good of an athlete you are is how your body and mind will hold up in higher altitude and there's there's really not much training you can do to prepare for the altitude you really just have to take take it very slow and steady and see how your body adjusts the higher you go. There's some people that take a long time to acclimatize. All of us take some amount of time, which is why even a mountain like Everest, where the distance from base camp to the summit is only about 13 miles, but it will take you a good four to six weeks to actually reach the summit. And the reason for that is because you have to give your body so much time to adjust to the higher altitude. And uh, I think I read in the uh, article that appeared about your climb that uh, when you were almost at the summit, it was almost um, uh, unbearable for you. You you were suffering uh, getting up to the top, and you were only able to spend a very short time there. Is that correct? Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're on summit days for these bigger mountains you can expect to be moving for a total of 21 straight hours and you you might take a uh an hour break somewhere in there Um, but more or less you're moving from anywhere from 20 to 30 hours on on summit day and when you're when you're reaching the summit you're you know physically very tired but also because you're at the highest point of altitude it's the most difficult for your mind for your brain and body to adjust to. So when you're when you're reaching the summit, in this particular case, Aconcagua, where it really gets steeper the higher you go up. So the, the higher you ascend, the greater the physical difficulty. Also, the more precarious the mountain is at the very top. Uh, so you, you really have to try to remain focused. But the altitude plays tricks with your mind. And um, for me, I had everyone in our group experience some amount of hallucinations. Um, there was a point in time when I was looking out over the uh, Andes Mountains, and it was a beautiful, beautiful mountain range, one of the most beautiful views I'd ever seen. And I was asking the, the gentleman next to me who was part of my group if, if he could also see these what appeared to me to be ancient ruins along the side of the, the mountain range. And he just kind of looked at me like I was crazy, and I kept pointing. I said, no, no, look over there. And he, he told me there's, there's nothing over there. And so I close my eyes i try to uh, run my eyes a little bit and look again and sure enough the what i thought to be ancient ruins was nothing but my imagination and everyone experienced some level of this and probably the most uh scary part for me is that i experienced a very very modest amount of uh what's known as high altitude pulmonary edema which is where the blood vessels in your lungs at high altitude start to constrict and they they basically push blood into your lungs and if you're not if you don't address address that very very quickly, your blood your lungs can start to pool with blood, and then that becomes a very serious problem. Fortunately, it happened when we were already at the summit, so the the 
the recipe for curing it is to just head on down to lower altitudes. So after we had summited, I spent about maybe 90 seconds on the summit or so, and then just quickly turned around and went back down. Wow. And I understand that you are going back to um, uh, Tibet and you're going to, is it Tibet or Nepal? I can't remember where Everest is. So uh, Everest is actually on the border of Tibet and Nepal, so you can ascend from either side. Uh, I will be I will be going over to uh, the Nepal side to attempt a summit. And and how much uh, additional work are you going to be doing? And I know Richard. The listeners here may or may not be familiar with him. Uh, he is a very fit guy, and uh, uh, you know, very athletic. And uh, uh, you know, this is a tough thing to do. What type of additional work do you need to do, um, other than what you've already done to date to get to the top of this peak uh, for your uh, uh, Himalaya quest? For me, I'm going to be incorporating a lot more hill training into my my usual workout routine. I, I'm exercising anywhere from well, when I'm training for a marathon, I'll run about 55 to 60 miles a week. And in this particular case, I'll be actually participating in the Boston Marathon and then leaving right from the Boston Marathon over to Nepal uh, to Summit Everest. So I'm already going to be incorporating a lot of aerobic activity, but I'll be more focused on making sure that uh, my my legs are used to going up really steep inclines. So rather than focus all my attention on some flat road running, I'll be getting in a lot of hills for sure. Well, look, this is a good place for us to stop. Uh, we're talking about Everest and and uh, and your and your last uh, mountain climb. Let's go ahead and take our bottom of the hour break, and when we return, we will begin our chat with Coronado Mayor Richard Bailey about homelessness and about affordable housing you're listening to inside track trusted local news and talk we'll be right back i'm proud to welcome my good friends at tucson iron and metal retail to inside track as an advertiser jamie kipper and her staff are conservation experts they sell round and square steel tubing metal plate and roofing materials as well as new and used steel aluminum and stainless steel to ranchers artists interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. 
Inside-Track.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We are talking with Coronado, California Mayor Richard Bailey. We've been discussing homelessness in America on a prior show, and today we turn our focus to affordable housing, which are which is a major issue in America today. Uh, Richard, I want to uh, just embellish on a quote you made recently. You've said, in Coronado, we're big believers in doing our fair share to accommodate housing needs. We're willing to do our part, but we can only fit so many people in such a small space. Talk about that small space and the constraints there are for any kind of real expansion of population in uh, Coronado. Yes. So as I'm sure many of your listeners are maybe somewhat familiar with Coronado because it feels like half of Arizona comes to visit us in the summer. (laughs) But for those listeners that might not be familiar with Coronado, we are essentially a, a peninsula adjacent to the city of San Diego. And within our city limits, we have a total of seven square miles of land. Within that seven square miles, a good chunk of it, over half of it, is occupied by the U.S. Navy. So that's federal property outside of our land use authority. And then we also have port land and also state land. When you take away all of the land that is outside of the city's direct land use authority, we have a total of 1.1 square miles. Within that 1.1 square miles, we have just under 26,000 residents that call Coronado home. In addition to this limited amount of uh, space to develop, we also contend with the California Coastal Commission, which is a, a state department whose main charter is to protect coastal access. So they are actually... Uh, they tend to be opponents of residential development along the coast because they believe that restricts coastal access to visitors. And then we also have an airport located at Naval Base Coronado. And so the FAA does not support increasing intensity of land use in residential areas adjacent to an airport. So we have all these very unique constraints that uh, make Coronado a very difficult place to, to build And right now, when you take a look at our total population density of just about 26,000 individuals, and you spread that out over 1.1 square miles, our most densely populated city in San Diego County. So what exactly, we'll get to to some of the legislation that's been passed uh, by by the state of California about affordable housing, but what are the, what are the, penalties that Coronado is facing uh, from the state of California if action isn't taken, I think, by the end of 2023. Yeah, so every six years or thereabouts, the state of California goes through what's known as a housing cycle, where the state says, you know what, we expect there to be uh, X number of people over uh, X increase in population over the next several years. Cities, let us know how much of this population you can accommodate through new housing units. So historically, cities have uh, reported from the bottom up. They, they meet with our community development department and city council, and we ask ourselves, okay, how many additional uh, housing is, units can we reasonably accommodate here in Coronado? We forward that number up to the state of California, and the state of California says, thank you very much. And then this becomes our uh, the basis for creating what's known as the housing elements. Uh, which controls the zoning for all residential zoning within our city and the cities throughout the state of California. This time around, instead of going from the bottom up to determine how many housing units our city could create, it came from the top down, where we basically had an outside agency dictate to Coronado that you must accommodate 
accommodate 900 new housing units. So zone four, 900 new housing units over and above what you currently allow through, through your zoning. And if you don't do this, uh, you're going to be faced with financial penalties of uh, starting with $100,000 per month. And in addition to that, there's new rules in the state of California, which essentially say if you don't have a, a compliant housing element that accommodates these 900 plus housing units, we will allow developers to come into your city, submit any plan they would like, and city, you're going to have to approve this. Now, this is known as the builder's remedy. It's, it's very, very new. Uh, there's a lot of gray area within this law, but the, a lot of cities are in Coronado's uh, position here, but where you're between a rock and a hard place, and the state is threatening these financial penalties and also threatening to take away local control of zoning, essentially. So... In Coronado, there have been uh, some two to eight plex developments in recent years, but these are mainly for sale. They're not for rent properties. Uh, the cost of land in Coronado, just because that's what the market is, 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 is extraordinarily uh, high. Um, how, how realistic is it that the state can enforce something that, from a, even from a straight economic standpoint, won't end up relieving an affordable housing crisis that exists in Southern California. You, you hit the nail on the head, Bruce. As one of my favorite economics professors back in college used to say, the laws of economics are oftentimes stronger than the laws of physics. <laughs> and and, and there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And this is an example where the you have state housing goals that don't actually align with state housing policies. So, State of California will say, we want housing to be more affordable. So Coronado, build affordable or zone for, quote unquote, affordable housing units. Now, through this type of housing cycle, the state of California does not use um, a calculation based off median income and then do deed restrictions to determine affordable housing or to guarantee affordable housing. What they do is they use a proxy. And that proxy is density. And so for, for what we're being forced to zone for, if Coronado were to zone for any development uh, greater than 29 units per acre, that would count as, quote, affordable housing, even though these units would all go for $2.5 million plus. Um, and, and is the state really sincere in their attempts to create more affordable housing or did someone just skip out on economics class? Because you know, at the end of the day, you could put 3,000 new housing units in Coronado, and if you deed restrict them, the market won't actually create them. But if you don't deed restrict them, they're going to go for two plus million dollars every single one of them. So, is the is the penalty to be imposed by the state? As you said, it could be a hundred thousand dollars a day. Is that imposed? Uh, if you don't, if the city council doesn't um, change zoning laws, or is it based upon uh, actually building those units in re you know in real time? Yeah, great question. So the penalty as of now is threatened to be one hundred thousand dollars per month. Just to clarify that, so it's hundred thousand dollars per month, which might not sound like a lot, but in a smaller city, a hundred thousand dollars per month will add up, add up very quickly. The the, the financial penalty as of this moment is tied to whether or not we zone for 
these 900 plus housing units. What makes this a little more complex, though, is that historically, a city could zone for these units. And if they weren't built, or even if they didn't have a chance of being built, the state wouldn't really care. Hey, you zone for them. Uh, you check that box. You're good to go. In fact, some cities would even zone for units, say, at the bottom of a riverbed, which obviously didn't have a chance of being built, and that would still count towards their housing element being certified. But what's happening now is you have the state housing department that reviews all of your all of your uh, proposed zoning changes, and they determine, they make the assessment whether or not these proposed zoning changes are actually likely to produce new housing units. And if they determine they are not, then it's back to the drawing board for you with the financial penalty hanging over your head. What makes matters even more complicated is that when you ask the State Department for guidance, you basically ask them, hey, well, if you were in our shoes, what would you do? They don't give you a direct answer. Uh, So we in Coronado, we are making a, a good faith effort to be compliant with the state housing mandate while also trying to maintain our quality of life so the Coronado remains a desirable place to live. But we're not quite sure what that path forward looks like, and we haven't received much guidance from the state. So Coronado isn't alone in this particular dilemma that you face. Uh, uh, This article uh, recently published said that 58% of California cities, uh, that's 247, have not hit their numbers either. So are they going to go after everybody? I mean, it, it's, you know, this, the reason, the reason I thought this was such an important thing to talk about, Mayor Bailey, is even though this hasn't happened in Tucson or Phoenix, per se, our two largest cities in Arizona, um, this sort of state control, particularly because there's this emphasis on affordable housing, you know, it may only be a matter of time before this happens, not just in Coronado and these other 247 cities, but it may happen all across the country. You're absolutely right. Oftentimes, the policies that come out of California are precursors for the policies that spread across the nation. So usually what happens here in California is just a couple years ahead of what happens everywhere else. So I think your, your question is spot on. What, we're seeing, what, what typically has happened when the state has changed housing policies is that they will look for certain outlier cities that are uh, out of compliance And even if there's dozens or hundreds of cities that are out of compliance, they will try to find one special case to make an example of them uh, from our standpoint uh, to 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 show other cities that, hey, we'll come after you. So you better get your act together. You better become compliant. Um, And so we are one of although many other cities are out of compliance right now. We were one of just a handful that actually received a notice of violation letter from the state of California. Uh, threatening this financial penalty. What kind of legal recourse does Coronado and the other cities that have been set up to make an example of, uh, what kind of recourse do they have? Unfortunately, because it was the state that wrote the rules for creating these housing elements and the penalties associated with being out of compliance, there is very little, there's virtually no legal recourse uh, our city or other cities can pursue. However, there is a potential for a legislative fix. So meaning that we would have to go to one of our state assembly members or state senators and make our case that these these new housing numbers are simply untenable, not because we don't, once again, want to do our part. We, we have done our part, and we'll continue to make a good faith effort to 
provide for the housing that's necessary in San Diego County. However, we're already the most densely populated city. We have all these unique constraints that the state hasn't taken into account when our housing allocation was provided to us. So does it really make sense to, to punish the city that's the most densely populated uh, when so many other cities have so much more land available and are actually willing and able to build? And they're raising their hands saying, hey, we'll build additional housing units. We'll take on those um, those, new, those new units if we're allowed to. And, and so we think there's a potential for a legislative fix. We're talking to cities in similar situations as ourselves and trying to put together a mini coalition here in San Diego County to ask for some relief or at least ask to extend the timeline um, from which these penalties could be enforced. But how many of those cities have constraints from the Coastal Commission, the Port of San Diego, uh, uh, the Defense Department, as well as the FAA that have all of these overlays that you do? I mean, I mean, it just it, the whole thing just defies logic when you think about it. And then to think that what what they will uh, agree to count as an affordable housing unit uh, could cost two point five million dollars for somebody to move into. I mean, the whole thing is just preposterous. It really is a head-scratcher, Bruce. And, and that brings me to that question I asked earlier. Is the state really sincere in creating more affordable housing for the middle class? Um, what, what I've noticed is because of the, how the state's housing policies have shaped out, a lot of developers will tell you, hey, it only pencils out for me to build these higher-end units and then take advantage of some laws regarding density bonuses that allowed me to build even more luxury units so long as I allocate a certain percentage of this development to low-income housing that's actually deed-restricted. So essentially what the state has done is they've created uh, two markets, one for luxury units, uh, $1.5 million and above throughout the state of California, and then units for uh, the very low-income and they've kind of gutted the middle-class housing market. I was in a meeting last week with a, a group of developers, and they were all telling me that there is just no way they can make middle house, excuse me, uh, middle-income housing pencil out anymore. So there's lots of employees who cross the bridge daily to go to work in Coronado at the base at the Hotel Dell and restaurants and businesses. I assume the council is all for creating nearby housing for the folks that work in town to live in town. Um, can you imagine the 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 shock uh, if the Coastal Commission, who who a long time ago said after the Coronado Shores were erected, nothing we're never going to have high rise housing in in Coronado in in the coastal zone? I mean, you almost can't do this without building, you know, sort of a, a Manhattan, you know, sort of a style high rise or or mid high rise uh, building, don't you think? And what would that do to the community itself? Well, exactly. And then that runs afoul of what the FAA would allow because yeah. the FAA has a flight pattern over a quarter of our city. And so we're, we're, we're working really hard on this. Once again, we're, we are, we're trying to work with the housing uh, department of the state to understand what our options are and to seek guidance from them. You know, if you, you could, in theory, spread out those 900 units throughout most of Coronado. Sure. Uh, or you could try to concentrate them in a couple of different areas, but there are no real good options. And as anyone that's visited Coronado knows, as is the case for most coastal cities, we're already experiencing a lot of parking congestion. We already experienced a lot of traffic congestion. Um, we would, we're, we're certainly willing to do our part, but it's just physically 
nearly impossible. And, and here's one last point. I don't know how we're doing on time, Bruce, so please cut me off. We're, we're good. We're good here. so far. Got about six so, minutes. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Part of the calculation that went into assigning us 900 plus housing units was that the naval base Coronado has a lot of jobs. And so what the state did is they said, Coronado, the formula we're using to allocate housing is based on jobs and proximity to transit. Naval base Coronado is within your city limits. There's a lot of jobs on there. So your housing units are based on the jobs in at the naval base. And we said, well, gosh, that's really peculiar because people that are stationed at the naval base oftentimes are on a ship across over off the coast of Japan. So does it really make sense to build housing units for people that are working over in Japan and have residency over in Florida? Like that kind of, once again, was a head scratcher. To make matters even more complicated, if the naval base built housing units, like brand new housing units on their base, because it's federal property, the state won't count those new units towards our housing goals. <laughs> so they, they count the jobs associated with the new housing towards our housing allocation, but they won't count actual housing units being built for the workforce on Naval Base Coronado towards our count. It really just does defy logic. Uh, Mayor Bailey, we have a caller, Charles, who's on the line, uh, want uh, to talk with us. Charles, go ahead. You're on with Coronado Mayor Richard Bailey. Mayor Bailey, uh, this is a wonderful topic, and you elucidated it so clearly. I really appreciate your clarity, uh, and Bruce, for having you on. I have a practice that I like to that I like to encourage. I call it tailpiped carburetorism. It's taking the tailpipe of one government enter- entity and sticking it so far down the intake of, of the other entity that it chokes on its own exhaust. And <laughs> I'm thinking, what if you were to either a disincorporate Coronado, Coronado and let it be San Diego County's problem, or b what if you were to uh, to remove the naval base, you know, but you'd have to have a vote on it in Coronado. But if you were to rezone Coronado to exclude the corporate limits to exclude the naval base, then it would be outside the calculus of the state because it would no longer be inside of Coronado. Would that, cha- would that change the math any for the state? Uh, that, those are great questions and great hypotheticals. And I'm going to borrow your, uh, can you repeat, what was, that, what was that analogy you used? I'll send it to you, Bear. I call it tailpiped carburetorism or tailpipe in the modern day. Tailpiped carburetorism. <laughs> yeah, or tailpipe. I like that a lot. I'm no going to remember that. Because no one remembers what a carburetor is, tailpipe tailpipe intakeism, if you will. But the point is, what you do is lawfully, morally, and peaceably learn how to uh, uh, make malleable the tailpipe so that it's inserted down the exhaust of the other political political entity. By the way, another thing you you might consider is the 1976 federal law called FLIPMA, which is the Federal Land Management Planning uh, Act. And what it says is when you coordinate two municipalities, so if you had, say, San Diego County and Coronado coordinate on a policy that says this will be our policy, the federal government then has to respect that. You call it what's called a coordination meeting, and you force them to comply with what your local regulations are. But it requires at least two political entities to agree on something uh, that are uh, outside the, the one that you're trying to regulate. 
Charles, thanks very much for your call. You're welcome. Yeah, I really appreciate the suggestion, Charles. Um, on on in regards to your last uh, question there about coordinating with say another um, agency within San Diego County, believe it or not, when we were allocated these 900 housing units, the County of San Diego, which has a lot of unincorporated land that is much more affordable and has no development on it. Uh, the County of San Diego raised their hand and they said, it doesn't make sense to assign these units to Coronado. We'll go ahead and take them. It's more affordable to build out here. We can. It's easier to build uh, middle-class housing out here. Let us take them. And this, the state agency that oversaw this uh, said, no, we're not going to let that happen. Uh, so all, all common sense has really gone out the window and they've reduced any incentive or even possibility for collaborating with neighboring agencies at this time to make matters worse, this cycle repeats itself in just four more years. And so the, this isn't the last time we're going to be in this position. So that's, that's why we're, we're seeking a legislative fix, because as difficult as it will be to get through this housing cycle, it will be even more difficult to get through the next one unless we get some legislative relief. Mayor Bailey, can you discuss where members of your council are on this state housing mandate? And also, uh, you meet I think weekly the city council does uh, in front of the public. What are the majority of Coronado residents staying, saying about state requirements being pushed like this? Our council has been absolutely unanimous in their opposition to the state mandates that are coming down to usurp local control. So that's been really encouraging that we, we have a very united front. And there's a united front amongst many cities throughout San Diego County and California that are politically right, left, or center. They're finding a lot of common ground on our ability and our desire to control our own destiny. So that's great. Uh, Our community, once again, from the political right to the political left, all are kind of scratching their heads saying, wait a second, it's our community. Uh, Sacramento doesn't have a great track record of getting a land use policy correct for themselves why are we why are you trying to usurp our local control it should be up to us to determine what kind of community and city we want to live in and so we're finding a lot of uh, broad, broad support from residents throughout uh, our city and throughout the county hmm. so uh, if a fella owns a home on a 4,000 square foot lot uh, as a lot of the uh, uh, residences are built upon if he decided to build a fourplex there, um, what kind of res- what kind of response would his neighbors have to this happening next door to their single-family residence? Do you think that can't be a very appealing thought? That would significantly change the quality of life for the for the other people living in Coronado, wouldn't you think? Oh, it, it absolutely would, and the, the residents by law uh, have have virtually no say in the matter. Meaning. Uh, they, they might want to come to city council and say, hey, we oppose this project. However, uh, the state requires us to approve these projects administratively. And unfortunately, when you look at it from an economic standpoint, if you look at all the homes on a particular block, as you just described, the first person to do the fourplex is the one that's going to get the most value for their properties. The second person is going to get the second most value for their property. So there is a financial incentive uh, for many residents to take advantage of this, because if they don't, who knows if you know, t- 10, 20 years from now, they might be left with the only single family home on a block of all fourplexes 
And that single family home is now less valuable in many ways because you're in a neighborhood of fourplexes. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, the situation in Coronado is not much different than, say, here in Tucson, where those streets that are mainly known for multifamily rentals uh, are not as pricey or, you know, they, you can't keep up the neighborhood quite the same way as if they were all single-family homes. That would be the case yeah, there, yeah. I, sus- I suspect. Yeah, that's spot on. Hmm. Well, Mayor Bailey... Um, it, it sounds like you have uh, quite a uh, hike in front of you uh, going up Mount Everest. I wish you all the best of luck. I hope to talk with you after you return safely from that trip. And in the meantime, I hope that you, the council, and the good citizens of Coronado are going to be able to uh, get over, get through this uh, conundrum that you all face. And uh, uh, I've I've known you for a while. Uh, you have a, a lot of creative ideas. I think the I think this is a problem that's going to take uh, a a number of great creative ideas in order to achieve. I think you're right on, Bruce. Hey, thank you for having me on, and thank you for your friendship. We'll see you in Coronado soon. You bet. Take care. That was Mayor Richard Bailey from Coronado. And as I said, you know, we're talking about affordable housing because of how it affects everybody uh, all over the place. So um, uh, thanks thanks, uh, for, for joining us today. Uh, and um, insiders, check out my Facebook and Twitter accounts for the latest news and views on the news. All of our Inside Track episodes are available at Apple Podcasts. Until next week for Inside Track, for Ed Wilkinson, this is Bruce Ash wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. See you again in 167 hours. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap, and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or wilkinsonwealthmgmt.com.